Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and now tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our podcast, I've got a great conversation following up what we had last week with John Calipari, Mark Few, and Tom Izzo. This week, I've got Matt Painter, Shaka Smart, and Anthony Grant, Painter from Purdue, Shaka Smart from Texas, Anthony Grant from Dayton. And we're going to discuss a lot of the same topics. When should the season start? We're all waiting for the Division I Council on September 16th. What should it look like? Should there be conference games, non-conference games? All these topics are going to come out. Very fascinating conversation. On the back end, we're going to talk about social justice, injustice, systemic racism. What has changed? What do they hope will be the next steps on these respective campuses? So that's all coming up. A long conversation here on the podcast. But before we get to that, I just want to say some words about a great man, an important man. Uh, who passed away over this past week, uh, Tom Jernstedt, um, at the age of 75. Let me tell you about Tom. He is the father of the Final Four, saw the tournament expand from 25 to 64 to 68, really was the architect of the CBS Turner deal, billion-dollar deal, struck it in 2010 and went in in 2011, ended up being inducted as a contributor in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame for his work with the NCAA and USA Basketball in 2017. So his fingerprints are on so many aspects of March Madness and NCAA college basketball across the board. He was beloved by his peers, a friend to so many people across the spectrum in college athletics. He was humble. He was a centrist, if you will. I don't know what he was politically, but a centrist in terms of a mediator getting people together in the same room. He was a mentor. And I will say this to someone like me who met him early in my career when I was a newspaper reporter to when I was at ESPN and then soon after, treated me the same, encouraged me, and allowed me to have great access. And I appreciated that deeply. Just such a good, solid human being. He will be incredibly missed by his peers, of course, his family, and we send our thoughts, our prayers, our condolences uh, to the family of Tom Jernstedt. And I just want to say, may his memory be a blessing. All right, coming up now, my conversation with Matt Painter, Shaka Smart, and Anthony Grant. Matt, I want to start with you because you are on the Men's Basketball Oversight Committee. Uh, we're waiting to see what the Division One Council will do on September 16th. What would you like to see them do in terms of a starting date? Well, I think, um, you know, the end of November, just kind of that comfort zone when most schools are getting out. I think that's going to weigh a lot 
in this situation. And um, the way you frame your questions <laughs> is going to catch me because you're, you're in those meetings and you kind of understand what people are comfortable with and what people aren't comfortable with. And it, it's been a little delicate, to be honest with you, because so many different people in the fall and, and what they've, um, you know, like our, our, uh, our league's not playing, um, you know, football, for example. So just trying to get it right and trying to do what's best for the student athletes, but also have a pulse on all the details around it, whether that's the testing, you know, just the protocol across the board um, so we can get going and, and, and play basketball probably in uh, late November. So wait, before Shotgun Anthony jump in here, um, Matt, why do you think, uh, if you can split hairs here, I know you've, you've got some uh, stuff you got to keep private and I respect that, but why do you think there is some comfort in that November 25th, that Thanksgiving week date? Well, that's about 80% of the schools will be out by then. I think that's a comfort. I think the thing that you lose is the fact that you're going to know a lot more then. Um, and you know, there's a lot of uh, people that are playing in the fall. And so you're going to learn a lot from the people that are participating in some fall sports and participating in football. You know, I really think the elephant in the room, Andy, is just can you start in that second semester when school starts at that time? And uh, hopefully we can get consistent testing across the board and hopefully we can get some consistency from a medical standpoint. There's a lot of things that get talked about and got to get everybody in the room to really agree on kind of the do's and the don'ts. Yeah, and, and Shotgun and Anthony, I want to get your thoughts on the starting date. I will just say that I've been hosting this weekly NCA social series, and everyone keeps talking about this test that could be like a pregnancy test where you just take it at home uh, through your saliva every day, and you know who's good, who's not. If we can get there, obviously that's a game changer if that's widespread. Shaka, then Anthony, when would you like to see, and when do you think it could start? I mean, we want to play basketball as soon as it's safe for our guys and for our, our coaches. So. You know, we'd love to start in the normal time, but this, this is anything but a normal year. Um, I think the interesting thing is, I know in our conference, the decisions being made with football are so, you know, front and center right now. And we don't really have a crystal ball in terms of what's going to happen with that. So uh, kind of have to make the best decision possible in mid-September. And obviously we all know that there's going to be some changes from there, but I know I speak for our team and staff. We'd be really, really excited if we knew that we could play in late November and, and, and do it safely for our guys and for our coaching staff. Anthony? Yeah, I, I guess for me, um, at the end of the day, we've got to do what's best for, for the game and making sure that we all can get on the court safely. But I, I guess I would say, give me the rules of the race before I tell you what race I want to run, right? So at the end of the day, uh, if, if we're going to go to a late November start date, which means we'll miss some opportunities to play in some games early in the year that we've all scheduled that we'll lose, you know, at a date in the A-10, those games are really, really important to us. So if we lose those games, uh, then on the back end, how are we being evaluated at the end of the year when it comes time for NCAA selection at large bids and those type of things? So uh, I think, you know, it's important that we look on the front end and control the controllables. But I'd also like for the committee to consider, okay, what, what's, what's the criteria if some of those games can't be replaced on, on a schedule when we lose some of those opportunities for teams in the A-10 or some other conferences, what are we being told? Uh, because we don't have the luxury of having those quad one and quad two games that maybe some of the power fives can get in their conferences. We won't have access to those if we're not able to play in some of these uh, exempt tournaments. And I speak for not only Dayton, but for several other schools 
in our league and other teams across the country that will miss those opportunities. And when it comes down to it, what type of criteria are we selecting an NCAA tournament field from? All right. So that's a great jumping off point. You know, as Cal said to us last week, he says, look, it's not going to be fair. Dan Gavitt has said that. Mitch Barnard is the new selection committee chair. Um, every year we say, oh, the, for the selection committee, it's going to be a tough year to select teams and seed. This clearly will be the toughest because if it is an unbalanced schedule, if some are just playing conference, Ivy, we'll see about the Pac-12. I'll ask you about in a moment here, the Big Ten. Uh, and others are playing some non-conference. It's not going to be equal. There may not be a set number of games. And so let me come back to you, Anthony, and then if Shock and Mac can jump on that. One thing I've heard is probably not touching the 31 and at least keeping that at the high point. And hey, if you can get to 31, great. If you can't, that's okay too. So let's assume that is true. They're not going to touch that. What is the ground though? What's the minimum you think to have a legitimate regular season for you, for your staff, for the tournament, and most importantly for the players to feel like this is a season that I should play in and opt in, not opt out, to have at least a minimum? Anthony, I'll start with you. You know, again, I think it's a tough question. Um, If we go to the date of November 25th, you know, you're talking about a window there to play maybe eight non-conference games, or there's another, I guess, recommendation that maybe you start conference first. I'm not sure what direction we'll end up going in. And then you got to also understand you also have final exams, even though the kids won't be on campus. I think uh, at least what we're talking about is after November, sending uh, kids home to finish out the semester, uh, you still have the final exam. So that period of time, if your kids are taking finals, you're not going to be playing games during that period of time. So how do you get 31 games in? You know, where can you fit them in? Now, if there's bubbles, if there's other things that I'm not aware of, that would be something that that I'd be interested in hearing about. And, I, and I'm assuming all that stuff's being taken into consideration. So without having knowledge of, of how that would work, I'd be interested in hearing more about it. Shaka, what, do you have a minimum here in terms of what makes a legitimate regular season? Well, I think a lot of it, Andy, comes down to money, right? So Anthony makes a great point. I mean, the, probably the most important component of all of our non-conference schedules is that three or so games that you play in a very short span of time in an exempt tournament. So if we did start later, finding a way to get that event in, we're going to have to be extremely creative. But the challenging situation is there's no one person, Andy, that really oversees it all. You know, normally we're all in charge of our own non-conference schedule. Obviously, the administrators are a big part of it, as well as the coaches. You have input from the NCAA and from the leagues. But Anthony mentioned bubbles. That's going to be really expensive, but that might be what we need to get that many games, Andy. So if we can figure that out on the front end uh, sooner rather than later, that's going to put us in a lot better position. But I think, you know, from the beginning, Andy, again, in our league, football is really at the front of everyone's mind. We need a bunch of basketball-focused folks around the country um, that are really, really getting together and figuring this stuff out. And even then, it's going to be imperfect. But uh, planning now as opposed to waiting till November, December and saying, oh, no, we got to figure this out. All right, Matt. They don't want to give me a number. You got a number for me? <laughs> Well, that's why we, you know, we sent it to the selection committee to get to that minimum and maximum number because, uh, you know, Anthony made just a great point just about, you know, what's the criteria? Well, they don't know. And just because there's questions out there without an answer right now, only speculation. And and then Shaka really made a great point there when he mentioned that at the end, like, you know, where are we going to be? Where are we going? 
Um, there's just so many things that are there. And, you know, and, and football is going to answer some things for the people that are playing. I think that piece of it will, will really help as we go. But we have to have a game plan. But we also have to have plan B, plan C, because some things can happen. Um, that's why I think the conference season is really going to come into play and be very important. But also, you know, you have to be able to get, um, you know, for, for people that are that have a schedule low to mid majors, you know, they need the money too from guarantee games. You know, you can get to the bubble and argue the bubble piece of it. Um, can we do that? Can we pull that off? There's a lot of people that feel that they can. Obviously, it's happened um, in the NBA. There's money. You know, you're going to get into some things where someone in the Big Ten or the Big 12 can do the testing, but can some of the teams that are coming to their place, say for a guarantee game, you know, are they going to have the same level of testing and are we comfortable with that? So hopefully you can get a lot of those things figured out. But Dan Gavitt's done a tremendous job and he does have all those options. And he is thinking with his team and a lot of other people on committees around the clock. So, you know, we kind of stay away from some of these danger zones and do the best job for college basketball. All right, I'm going to give you a number. I think it has to be a minimum of 20, somewhere 20 to 25, I think, for a lot of these players to say, you know what, that was a legitimate regular season. Um, now, that may be all conference, which we'll get to in a moment here, but I, I think that's at least a baseline. We'll see if I'm off, if not. So in terms of conference, how soon after September 16th would you like to see these conferences, Big 10, Big 12, 8, 10, come out and say, look, we're going to at least try to figure out a non-conference or we're only going conference because you guys are going to need some window to make this happen if it's going to be a non-conference before conference. Right. Um, and my gut is, I'll just say this right now, my gut is that I think you're going to have to do it the traditional linear way because on the back end, um, I just think television, once the NFL is over, isn't going to want you know Toledo at Purdue. They're going to want Purdue at Michigan, Purdue, Michigan State, Texas, Kansas, you know, uh, Dayton against Richmond in your league or something like that. I don't think they're going to want those other games on the back end leading into the tournament. That's just me from a television perspective. So Matt, I'll start with you on the, you know, how soon does the big 10 as an example need to make that decision about whether you're going to allow these teams to try to play non-conference or it's only conference. Well, relatively soon, you know, you would like to think early part of October to the middle of October, the latest, you know, they, they have to plan. So television is going to be a big, um, you know, factor in this. And, and they're going to have to be able to draw that line to say, hey, we need X amount of days before we get this started. And uh, the one thing we have to keep in perspective is we have to have the tournament. And so a lot of times when we're thinking non-conference or thinking conference or vice versa, you know, how do we, you know, figure this out? We, we have to make decisions that give us the best chance to have that tournament. And I think the, the number of games, the minimum will be lower. You know, you have the Ivy League who's going to start January 1st. Um, yeah, I, I, I really believe it'll be, you know, 15, 16, something in there. And then the max will be around 25, 26. I talked before without answering your question. So I thought I'd, I'd answer it this time. Shotgun, Anthony, what do you want to hear from the big 12 and the A 10 about, Hey, are we, are we going to be allowed to play non-conference or this is going to be only conference? Well, you know, Andy, you mentioned TV and you know, what, what, what they would want. And I know that's a huge factor financially, but the reality is obviously health is the biggest priority. Uh, but once we make the decision that it's it's okay to play health-wise, we have to know our priorities. So if our priority is the NCAA tournament and as equitable as possible in the selection of the NCAA tournament, then that might mean getting really, really creative with scheduling. That might mean playing that game that you just mentioned in February. And we have to be open to those things. And, you know, Anthony's absolutely right. 
there's teams in a lot of different leagues that have a chance to have terrific seasons, but they at least need to know, okay, what are the parameters under which we're going to do this? You know, do I need to run the table in my conference? Do I need to, am I going to be able to play X number of games against quote unquote uh, power five schools? So I think I agree with Matt. That needs to be figured out sometime, you know, within a matter of weeks after this decision on September 16th. Anthony. Yeah, I think both both comments by Matt uh, and by Shaka there, are, I would I would echo. I think you know, like I said earlier, tell me the rules of the race, and I'll tell you what race I want to run. And I think our conference will tell you the same thing. I think for the A10, the opportunity to play some marquee non-conference games traditionally has been huge for our league. So I would assume that that's what our leaders would push for, based on whatever the committee decides. Then I think we'll we'll make that determination, and I think it needs to be made quickly because obviously just in terms of whenever the season starts, it'll push you in terms of uh, when you actually start practice. Is it 42 days before your first game? So if that game gets pushed back, that first game's now November 25th, that changes everything that you've planned up to this point with your team. You know, So just in terms of you getting your team prepared and ready for whenever the season starts, I think the sooner we can have those answers, the better. All right, so there are two sort of scenarios I want to throw at you guys non-conference-wise that – are definitely being discussed. One, of course, is, you know, all the ESPN events, and there are a ton of them, in Orlando over a two- to three-week period. You come down when you want. You want to play four games. You want to play three. You want to play five. You want to play six. Maui's talking about, hey, you didn't play. If Providence didn't, let's say, play Alabama, um, you stay an extra day. Now you play Alabama. Oh, you didn't play North Carolina? Okay, you stay an extra day. You play them, too, to maximize these events. You get there on first day, test stay in one hotel, and then, you know, whatever that is, if that's a week, 10 days. Scenario two, to encompass your your other games um, that you have these sort of one-offs. So an example that was mentioned last week, let's say Louisville is going to play Kentucky. Now you bring in Murray, Eastern, Western, you know, two other mid to lows in that area. You all come to one site. You're there for a week at either Louisville or Kentucky. They get their game in, and then they play everyone else. And then, you know, Murray plays Louisville, and they get basically their own little mini round robin at one site. The test starts on one day. You test whatever the, you know, the health and safety is. And, hey, if you show up in your Murray State, hypothetically, and you've got too many people that are positive, you can't play, then you're out. And, you know, those are the kind of things that may or may not happen. Um, So I'm curious just if we can go around the table here. I guess I'll go Matt, Anthony, Shaka this time. Uh, Your thoughts on those kinds of non-conference scenarios that, you know, might possibly happen. Well, I think, first of all, that that's going to give everybody opportunities. Everybody wants to play those four to six games non-conference that are going to help them. But, you know, where does that lie contractually and timing like we discussed before? I think, you know, can you do that for the people that can't do that? They want to really, you know, take a step back and be able to, to try to go and do something. Do they have enough time to do it? So that, that's going to be um, tough, but I, th- I think it's doable. I think it's doable in certain situations, but it's not going to be doable for everybody. I, I think that's an obvious statement. You could flip-flop it. Anthony mentioned it earlier. I don't, I don't know if this will happen, but could you get to where we all try to go get our conference season and then we play our non-conference on the back end? There's a lot of TV contractual obligations there that I don't know if that can work. There's just a lot of moving pieces there, but um, I I just want it to be even for people. And it's not going to be, you know, that that competitive edge is going to be there. I think it's going to be unintentional. 
and whatever happens, but it's going to be there. Some people are going to get the short end of the stick, but there's also three, four, five teams that deserve to be in the NCAA tournament every year that's not going to be. Um, but when you're trying to plan things out, you just want to make it the best you can. And right now, it's it's really hard with all the moving pieces. Anthony, then Shaka, please. Yeah, I would say, Andy, yes to both options. I think for us, every everything would be on the table in terms of the Orlando opportunity and then what you just mentioned about uh, the potential of bubbles. The one thing I would say on the side of the bubble is uh, just having the consideration of what type of environment that are you in? Like with the NBA being in Orlando, there's no fans, right? So you're neutral. You got a neutral site for everybody. If you're talking about certain programs hosting tournaments on their home court, now you get into, you know, just what, what kind of sense does that make for you and your program where you are? Obviously we'd be very interested in hosting something here. I would assume we're all going to have a limited amount of fans, if any, that can be at these venues in terms of, uh, you know, the crowds and things like that. So I think for us, yeah, every option on the table is, is a viable option at this point. Yeah, I agree, Andy. I think we're going to need both if possible. Um, but again, the people that make those decisions are not on this call. And I think the sooner that we can you know, get to that point where we're you know, at least putting some things in pencil, you know, it, it's, it's going to continue to change. And you know, I think being flexible and adaptable is the name of the game for all of us throughout this whole season. But yeah, if we could get down to Orlando and, and in a safe way play a bunch of games, that'd be terrific. I definitely think uh, in the regions where it makes sense, I think all of us coaching regions like that, uh, it would be it would definitely be feasible to get in a location and be able to knock out four or five games over the course of I don't know a week or week and a half uh, in a safe way. So if we could do both those things. It'd be huge. And also there's one being discussed, and I know, uh, Matt, you're in one of these events that could be all at the Mohegan Sun as an example, uh, a venue that certainly, um, you know, could house something like this in one hotel. You're right there in the arena. I just want to go back to a contractual issue, and I don't want to get anyone in trouble here on a legal basis, so stop me if you can't answer this. Um, But all three of you have coached at various levels, and you know, and I think, Anthony, you mentioned this, relying on that guaranteed money. And we know a lot of programs around the country do, whether it's 80, 90, over 100 grand for these games. Well, that's usually based on having fans. Um, And the odds are, if it's the normal timeline, there won't be fans or barely any. If it's November, December, maybe we're lucky if it's, you know, later into the season, into the winter. Um, So how do you handle that if you have these agreements with some of these schools that's based on a guaranteed money with a lot of fans where you've got gate receipts to pay off. Um, so Matt, if we could start with you, like how, how do you handle something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we're going to have to lean on each other and really talk um, from conference to conference. Uh, I think the commissioners will have to get together because something would have to be modified, especially when you have uh, somebody buying um, a low to mid major that's coming in and they, and they're waiting for their TV money, their TV contract comes out and that game's not on TV and it's streamed. And so like hearing that now you have a home game, you know, it's, it's getting streamed. You're not getting any TV money and now you're not getting any of the gate because there's no fans and that could be really difficult. So there's going to have to be some modification. In my opinion, I think the brass is going to have to come together and try to get something figured out because you do have a signed contract. And so they, they could hold you to that contract. Um, there, there's going to have to be some people on the other end, understanding the situation. Anthony and Chaka. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think they'll have, to be a meeting of the mind, so to speak, if we get to that point. Uh, I think also this summer, some of that 
probably was taken into consideration. I think there's there's been some conferences and some some leagues that have said, hey, listen, you know, we'll put some some rules in this contract that that we're able to to kind of uh, modify the terms based on what happens if if we if we're allowed to have fans or not. Those type of situations. I, I think you'll see both. Yeah, Andy, I, th- I think that's one that has to be figured out by the attorneys because it sounds like talking to different coaches, it's kind of all over the place. I think there's some schools that feel like they can easily get out of contracts. I think there's other schools that feel like, hey, you know, we're going to have to pay if we don't play this game. So, you know, you'd like to have something across the board where you get guidance uh, nationally from the NCAA, but, you know, they're not the ones that probably have control over that. So um, that's going to have to go to the legal people at each school. Yeah, it's going to be incredibly difficult. We know at all these institutions, there are layoffs and sports are getting cut. Uh, and then and suddenly if you had to pay like a 80, 100 or more uh, buyout or guarantee, that's pretty tough and certainly could end up in court. One last topic before we uh, move on to just one thing off the court here. Um, officials. We can't have officials flying all over the place. Uh, however the schedule works out. How much do you think officials need to be factored into this? I'll start with you, Shaka. You know, in these mini bubbles, expanded bubbles, um, because we can't, we just can't have guys all over the country in this traditional sense that we've been used to. They need to be factored in just as much as everyone else. Those guys are human beings. They have families. Um, it's certainly unrealistic for them to referee in six different places in the span of a week. I think everybody understands that. So that's why, again, we need to be very, very creative with our scheduling. And if we do something like what you mentioned in Orlando or the regional bubbles, then hopefully those guys, like the teams, would be able to get there and then stay there for the duration of the event. Anthony? Yeah, I agree 100%. And as Shaka mentioned, you know, at the end of the day, our first priority is the safety and well-being of our players, coaches, our officials, everybody. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, that, that, that'll be, to me, just common sense that there's, there needs to be some type of, of uh, modification made in terms of how much travel and exposure officials are putting themselves in and, and, and as well as the games and the personnel that they're officiating. Matt, I'm curious if that topic came up in some form on the Oversight Committee. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with what both of them are saying. You're going to have to have, you know, a regional approach to guys, you know, working games and, and staying in their region. Obviously, when you get into those bubbles, there's many bubbles that you talked about that, that'll take care of itself as they're going to come in, just like a player would come in or a coach would come in. And so that you'll have that consistency there. But there, there's going to have to be something from a regional standpoint. Just you can't have guys reffing five or six games all across the country. Obviously, at the same time we're dealing with COVID and everything else, uh, we've had uh, a long overdue social awakening in this country, systemic racism for 400 years, uh, and it's every day we're seeing this. And I'm curious, now that you've been around your players, and I've talked to a lot of you guys and coaches and players around the country really since this began in the spring, and there's been raw conversations via Zoom. Shock, I'll start with you. What have you seen now with your players face-to-face how everything is different and how things could change going forward, hopefully in a positive light. Well, it's interesting you use the word awakening. This, this is not an awakening for most of our players. I mean, this is. And, I, I, and, I, and I'm glad you correct me that. I think it's an awakening for a large segment of America that should not have had that, but they have. Yes, I was getting to that. I think what has occurred, and in, in, in this is a really good thing, is 
an increased level of awareness and conversation about all of these topics amongst everybody, but, you know, specific to your question amongst our guys, uh, the, their families, the people that they're around, you see a certainly a sense of empowerment from student athletes, particularly black student athletes across sports. And I think that's a really, really positive thing. It's a very, very interesting intersection of all the things going on at one time. You know, it's not just about the social injustice stuff. You have COVID, you have a lot of stuff going on, economic impact uh, of this time. So uh, what's going to be fascinating, Andy, is everybody came out with their, you know, nice statement, you know, after George Floyd and everyone said, I stand against this or I stand with that. And it's like, okay, let's see, you know, what these folks are really about as we go here. And I think that's important for all of us. You know, it applies to me, it applies to everybody is what, what are we willing to participate in and how can we help be part of moving forward? Anthony? Yeah, I, I agree with, with what Shaka just said. I think, um, you know, for our guys, um, as Shaka mentioned, you know, for uh, a lot of us, you know, it's not something that's new, you know, and obviously the, I think what's been good to see is the amount of people uh, black, white, whatever, that have come out and said that, you know, this has to change. And I think that's different. So it's encouraging on one hand, but then you go from George Floyd to Jacob Blake, you know, and there's a, a level of discouragement that you get there. And, and and so I think for our guys, the biggest thing that I've seen is a is more of a willingness or a desire to get more educated on these type of subjects, whether it's just a flat out racism that some some have to deal with or systemic racism and how it impacts communities and people, minorities, or, you know, what we're dealing with now, we're in a, in a, in a cycle where we're about to elect a president. And so some of the things that, that go on around voting and how uh, that ultimately impacts some of the other areas, uh, COVID being another one of those areas that has impacted minority communities more heavily than others, and some of that has to do with some of the systemic racism that's going on. So I think it's been a great opportunity for us as coaches, as leaders, as the adults in the room to educate ourselves and to try to educate our players. Because I think at this point, and we're seeing it in every sport all across the country, guys are understanding by either watching professional sports or seeing other, their peers, the college athletes, using their voice and the platform that they have as athletes to express how they feel about it. And I think it's, it's awakening some people in our country to say, okay, well, why is this going on? Some people you, we won't get to people just won't understand. And they'll say, well, Hey, listen, I'm, I just want to watch you play sports. That's all I want to do. And, uh, but some people are saying, well, if so many people are, are really, really emotional and passionate about this subject, let me educate myself in terms of what's going on. And, and I think those are the allies and the people that I think at the end of the day, can move the needle a little bit and make change. So I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm proud of our athletes and other athletes that are passionate about trying to make a difference. So that, that's how I see it. Matt? I think, you know, for us at Purdue, that the first thing that um, we did was obviously sit down and talk. And I think being able to listen um, to your players and then as Shock and Anthony has mentioned, um, the educational piece, like what, you know, in the room, like who knows what you really can't just sit back and just talking and, and that's it. Like 
I felt like we had to be educated. We read a book called White Rage by Carol Anderson. Um, that was a phenomenal book. Um, actually, just as a human being, I was I was disappointed, like in myself, just some of the things I didn't know. I was the oldest person in the room. And then as we start to read and start to talk and, you know, you're talking about the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, you start to talk and, and get into these things. And then you lead to where, where's the change been? You know, where, where's the change? When you talk about school segregation and Brown versus Board of Education, and you talk about that in Little Rock, Arkansas, then you go back and you go into some major cities and you see how, you know, they're segregated to this day, um, the same or worse, like, you know, our, our guys were, we were amazed, like we were amazed and say like, you know, there, there has to be an understanding um, of change to help people. You know, when you get to lower socioeconomic backgrounds, you're just not going to have as many chances and many resources. And that simply isn't fair. So, um, you know, through the NABC and through coaching and through your own players and what you're doing on campus, um, it's so important, you know, that, that we continue this. I think the tangible things, you know, the voting and having everybody and having every student athlete going to vote on election day. Um, the McClendon initiative that they've done through the, the NABC with Tommy Amaker and Cal and Frank Martin and is so good because it's giving opportunities to people in administration. We have a situation where we don't have as many African-American head coaches or coaches, period, because they don't have the same opportunities. Um, you know, people hire other people that look like them. And why don't we have more administrators of color? And so this initiative in using John McClendon's name, who was a great coach, who was a pioneer um, in college and professional basketball um, is great. Also, there's a huge push from the NABC to eliminate the ACT and the SAT. You know, we, we lost an unbelievable icon in John Thompson who just passed away. And I'll never forget being a high school student and seeing him walk out of a game and not understand why he's walking out of a game you start to kind of read and understand as a young person, like, this is unfair. This has a cultural bias. You know, why are we doing this? And so why have we used this as a model here for, for student athletes to get eligible through the years when we knew it had a cultural bias and it wasn't fair, but yet we still did it. Like some of those questions that have been unanswered through the years, like they, they need to be answered. Like we've all talked about education needs to improve. Education needs to improve. Anybody um, who's a, been a part of education will, will constantly say that. But when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, you just simply don't have the same resources and that has to improve. And so I think some of the tangible things, Anthony and Shaka really talked about, you know, you want to have those things that are tangible. You don't want to pledge. You don't want a statement. Everybody puts out a statement. You know, pledges don't work. They don't work. We, we need tangible things. And I think those things that we mentioned are a good start but we, you know, we have to continue as coaches with our platform to keep this going, improve our teams, listen to your players, and uh, you know, keep educating yourself, and uh, keep thinking of the things that we you know we just talked about and discussed, and uh, keep doing that to help out our game and and just to help out overall our, our entire society. That's right. Listen, educate, empower, and be allies. Uh, I appreciate all of you. This has been incredibly educational, informational. We're going to know a lot more in a couple of weeks. Shaka Smart, Anthony Grant, Matt Painter. Stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. All right, now it's time for Cats Ranks here at March Madness 365. And in honor of Tom Jernstedt, who passed away last week at the age of 75 and really is the architect of what you see today with March Madness, I want to do my top 10 
sort of changes over the last quarter century with the NCAA tournament. Let's start at number 10, the bid process for the Final Four. I love the fact that it feels like an Olympic bid process, not the... (laughs) Not the controversial part of it, but just that cities get excited. You learn if you're going to get the event. There is an announcement. Cities gather around to hear that announcement. There's just, there's something about that bid process to host the final four. That's a number 10. At number nine, the first four. And we'll get to expansion momentarily. But it's become a big event in Dayton. It's giving opportunities Uh, for four more teams because of the expansion of the field. It's in one location, and the city of Dayton has embraced it. I think it's a positive change. At number eight, going from the RPI to the net. Now, I know this is not something that Tom Jernstadt did, uh, and this is a relatively new change. So this has been a change, though, over the last quarter century, and it is still evolving change to move away from the RPI toward the net. At number seven, this is something that Tom Jernstadt had a real hand on, uh, and that was the selection show, uh, making it an event. And certainly everyone circles that time in the six o'clock hour in the Eastern time zone to hear where these teams are going to be placed. At number six, another change that has shifted over the last decade if you, uh, or so is moving away from dome stadiums in the regionals. I think all regionals, and this has been the case, should be played at NBA, NHL arenas, much more of an intimate feel. And that has been the trend of late. At number five, the emphasis on scheduling to make sure these schools, power five, power six, power seven, whatever you want to call them, play road games, neutral site games, and play some of these elite teams from either one or two bid conferences. Number four, Tom Jernstead had a hand in that CBS Turner deal. 2010 went into effect in 2011. It has changed the landscape of the sport. It has certainly helped sports across the country. Uh, And it's been great using all those networks. It has been a huge plus, not just financially, but the way the tournament is digested, delivered. At number three, the branding, March Madness. Uh, The branding for this event is huge and uh, it has taken on a life of its own. You can do a lot with it. And that's been a huge plus. Number two, making the Final Four such a massive event. That has been tremendous for the NCAA and for the host city. And I hope we can see more and more of divisions one, two, and three coming together in one spot. And number one, expansion, 25, 32, 48, 64, 68. That's really the cap. But the expansion of this tournament, the tournament touching more cities, more states, more alumni across the country. Um, It allows for an unbelievable bracket. And the bracket has taken on a life of its own as well. And that's all related to the expansion. So those are my top 10 changes of the last quarter century, the beginning of that under the leadership of Tom Jernstedt that I think have really helped the NCAA tournament. All right, that'll do it. Wrapping up this edition of March Madness 365. We're going to know soon enough what is happening with this season Uh, Hopefully around September 16th, Division I Council, they will let us know. For everyone here at March Madness 365, turnersportsncaa.com, Chad Aycock, Abby Stoltz, Michael Kaplan, Sean Bartley, our staff at ncaa.com. I appreciate all of you deeply. We love the engagement from everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk again next week. Stay safe, everyone.
When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.